Hi, I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, author and physician Abraham Verghese, who received the 2023 Sun Valley Writers' Conference Writer in the World Prize, brings us intimately and poetically into the heart of his remarkable, inspiring journey from his childhood in Ethiopia to his experiences as a young doctor in America during the AIDS epidemic and his beginnings as a writer. Brigiz would go on to become a professor of medicine at Stanford, as well as the author of the classic memoir, My Own Country, and the beloved best-selling novels, Cutting for Stone and The Covenant of Water. Here, he describes the meaning and arc of his personal journey with heartfelt tenderness and appreciation, offering new insights into his vision and practice of his joint vocations and of the profound link between healing and storytelling. I want to say something about being a writer in the world. I've had the good fortune to have lived, but also to have worked in hospitals and closely with patients in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in Madras, India, Westfield, New Jersey, Johnson City, Tennessee, Boston, Massachusetts, Iowa City, Iowa, El Paso, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and now almost 15 years in Palo Alto, California. Truly a peripatetic existence, a very diverse geography. Much of it in my adult years was centered on medicine, and I'm sure all of it has undoubtedly fed into my writing. Napoleon said, geography is destiny. He was talking about France's position in Europe But to me, that statement, geography is destiny, is, I think, true for each one of us. It's especially true for me. My parents were born in the 1920s, and they were young college graduates. They had their degrees just about the time India was getting independence from Britain after centuries of colonial rule. There were no jobs to be had. And in response to an advertisement that both of them saw separately, they made their way to Ethiopia to teach. I mean, I marvel at my mother. Can you imagine a young woman in a sari who had to find Ethiopia on a map, taking off by steamship or however she went to Aden and then on to Ethiopia? But because they did that and subsequently met and married, their destiny changed completely. My older brother George and I were born in Ethiopia, and for that reason, our destiny was so different than that of our parents. When I went from Ethiopia in the middle of medical school, interrupted by the Civil War, and managed to finish my medical schooling in India, and then later came to America, each one of those moves further changed my destiny. The late E.L. Doktorov, who spoke so memorably at this conference, has said, it is the immigrant hordes who keep this country alive, the waves of them arriving year after year. Thank you. Who believes in America more than the people who run down the gangplank and kiss the ground? Not my words, Dr. Ogg. The reverse is also true. America gives immigrants new life. But what stands out to me is 
America gives voice to the new immigrants. It gave me voice. It gave me my voice. I know my talk today is billed as being about the covenant of water, but what I really want to do is trace my journey over three continents, from Africa to India to the United States, but focusing more on the internal geography, the internal map. Proust, in his book, Le Temps Retrouvé, Time Regained, which is volume seven of his masterpiece, says, every reader, as they read, is actually the reader of their self. The writer's work is only a kind of optical instrument so that the reader can discern what they might never have seen in themselves without this book. The reader's recognition of self in the book is the proof of the book's truth. My truth, my recognition of self, came gradually, and it's still evolving, but it came first and foremost by reading books, and then secondarily through the practice of medicine, and then through writing, and of course through the many, many relationships, the countless patients and people and friends I've encountered in my journey. But more than anything else, it was books. My brother George and I grew up before television was a thing in Ethiopia. So our entertainment was to read. Once I got past the Enid Blyton and the Hardy Boy series, I regularly visited the USIS American Library and the British Council Library in Ethiopia. So many books left a profound impression on me. I remember in particular when I was nine years old encountering C.S. Forrester's Horatio Hornblower series of books, tracing the career of this remarkable sailor. Looking back, C.S. Forrester's writings belong to the genre of the procedural, just as you have police procedurals and uh, law procedurals. I think as readers, we're all innately curious about the workings of a particular profession. C.S. Forrester's procedure was the workings of a ship of the line in the era of Napoleonic Wars. I often reread his books. I still have to look up words like leeway and windward, and I have absolutely no idea what a main top masté is, but it doesn't seem to mar my reading experience because I can guess. And I know the author knows and commands the material. So when I began writing about medicine, I actually didn't think of it as a procedural because to me, what is medicine but life plus plus? Life at its most acutely observed and lived. Nevertheless, I would draw on and take reassurance in my memory of C.S. Forrester's construction of Hornblower's world, its technical terms, the complication of a ship and of sailing. When I was 11 years old, I discovered Lady Chatterley's Lover. <laughs> and that completely changed the direction of my reading. <laughs> it took on a very distinct, prurient bent. But it is how I discovered the novel that changed my life, that led me to medicine. And that novel was Of Human Bondage by Somerset Maugham. And I confess, I picked it up because the title seemed very promising. <laughs> I found the book to be far better than anything I could have imagined. 
It's common for physicians of my generation or the generation before mine to speak of a book that called them to medicine. And for me, that was very much the book. Uh, in America, the book that called people to medicine was often Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, or it was Microbe Hunting by Paul de Cruyff. In the Commonwealth and the UK, the book was The Citadel by A.J. Cronin. And uh, talk about books being able to change the world. That book, set in a small Welsh mining town depicting medical conditions, so outraged the public, so embarrassed the medical profession, that most people think that it had everything to do with the establishment of the National Health Service, because that book captured the public's imagination. Well, for me, the book that called me to medicine was of human bondage. And it's not something I would recommend to someone saying, this is going to call you to medicine, because I think books speak to us individually. Uh, if you recall, in Of Human Bondage, the protagonist, Philip, is a, a boy that you're introduced to on page one. He's orphaned on page two. He has a club foot. He has a fairly miserable childhood with foster families. And then when he comes of age, he goes to Paris to become an artist. That's always been his escape, to paint, to draw. And so as soon as he comes of age, he takes off to pursue his dream. And at first, he's ecstatic. It's a wonderful experience. But then, six months into it, the money is running out. And more than that, he, he has the sense that he doesn't quite have the talent it takes to succeed. And he actually gets one of his teachers to come up and look at his paintings and... The man pretty much affirms what he thought, that he doesn't really have the talent to do this. Um, interestingly, that scene, I remember, is the teacher, Monsieur Fournier, says to him after delivering the bad news, he says, don't take this badly. I wish someone had told me what I'm telling you when I was your age. There is nothing worse for the temper than to discover one's own mediocrity at an advanced age. <laughs> and so... Philip made his way to London, where there was a small annuity left for him to pursue an education, and he decides to go into medicine, perhaps because of his club foot. And the first two years are drudgery, but there's this moment where Philip arrives on the wards, and Somerset Maugham describes that moment this way. Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist's canvas, and he said to himself, this is something I can do. This is something I can be good at. And ladies and gentlemen, those words just spoke to me. They just, you know, they just seemed to have been written just for me. Uh, I, I felt that I took away from those lines that not everybody could be a gifted artist. Not everybody could be a brilliant mathematician like my brother, whose genius was evident at the age five, at age five. And I spent my whole school days following two years behind him with teachers having great expectations of me <laughs> that I never fulfilled. But those lines said to me that not everybody could be an artist or a brilliant mathematician, but anybody with a basic curiosity about the human condition, a willingness to work hard, some empathy for their fellow human beings, could become a good physician. And uh, it was a profound moment to think that one line in a book steered the course of my life to medicine. I saw medicine as a romantic and passionate pursuit, and I, I still feel that way. Nothing has really changed. All those early books I read were teaching me how to be in the world. 
because I was far too young to acquire such knowledge simply through experience. Medical school for me was a grand adventure, particularly like Somerset Mom's protagonist, the moment I arrived on the wards. I remember I just was in awe of the clinicians who seemed to be able to read the body. I was enamored by those professors who could inspect the chest and point out to you things you hadn't noticed, that one side of the chest, one shoulder was drooping slightly, the ribs were a bit more crowded together, and then they would proceed to percuss the chest and then to apply their stethoscope, and then they would draw out what the X-ray would look like, including where the tuberculous cavity would be in what lobe. And we'd all troop over to radiology when the X-ray was taken, and there it was. It seemed like a kind of magic that I, I wanted to emulate, or the kind of clinicians who, in examining a patient with rheumatic valve disease of the heart, would um, examine the pulse and make their own deductions from that, then the blood pressure, then the neck veins, and finally look at the movements of the precordium, the front of the chest wall, and then before applying their stethoscope, they would tell us what we were going to hear, what murmur we would hear, which valve was affected, um, they were skilled at reading the body. It's no wonder that the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories was a very observant physician, Conan Doyle, who based his protagonist on his professor, a man by the name of Joseph Bell. So I made bedside medicine, teaching it, writing about it, teaching my students to be able to read the body, one of my singular interests in academic medicine. Allow me to recount a personal example because... I feel that these things are wrapped up in story. So a patient came to the emergency room when I was working in Tennessee. Uh, the patient had quite obviously had a stroke and couldn't speak, it was aphasic. The family went to park the car and they never returned. So we had no idea if the stroke had just happened or if it was a stroke that had happened some months before and they were now essentially dumping the patient on us because they didn't want to care for him. He couldn't tell us. The only clue was the image you see in front of you. You can see that his nail has a dense nicotine stain, but only in the distal part of the nail. You see, if you're a heavy smoker, you have to keep restaining the new nail that grows out to get that kind of a color. And if you stop for some reason, you'll get this beautiful line of demarcation between white pearly nail and nicotine stain nail. And so he had what you see there. And so one could infer that some acute event made this very heavy smoker stop smoking. In all likelihood, it was the stroke because he couldn't either get cigarettes or no one would give them to him. And if he knew the growth rate of the nail, you could say precisely when he had the stroke. So what is the growth rate of the nail? That turns out to be one of the most famous questions in medicine. Uh, William Osler, Sir William Osler, the granddaddy of American medicine. So much of what we do in medical schools and teaching on the wards is by the Oslerian methods. Um, but William Osler said that this was an important question to ask medical students because you could categorize them into three kinds. What is the growth rate of the nail? One large group of medical students would say, I don't know, sir, and that would have been me, too. A smaller number will say, I will look it up. But William Osler claimed there was always one student in the group who would mark their nail with silver of nitrate and say, I will let you know, sir. 
But the answer anyway is the nail grows at the rate of 0.5 to 1.3 millimeters a week. One millimeter a week is a rough guide. And so this patient probably had the stroke exactly four weeks prior to the moment that we saw them. I submitted this image to the New England Journal of Medicine, to their Images in Medicine section. And I titled it, because I'd been to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and was back in practice again, I titled it The Harlequin Nail. I thought that was so clever of me, a colorful description. And I was delighted when they accepted the manuscript. But when the galleys came, I saw that the journal had changed the title to The Quitter's Nail. The Quitter's Nail. I was upset. I called the New England Journal of Medicine to speak to the copy editor who put me on hold. And next thing I know, the editor, Jerry Kassir, came on the phone. I was rattled. I had no intention of making my complaints to the editor. Dr. Kassir was then and still is one of the most eminent figures in medicine. Someone I had never met, one of those godlike, fearsome figures who hovered over Boston and really the whole medical universe at the time that I was in training and, and later. So Dr. Kassirer heard me out quietly as I made my case on how Quitter's nail was so prosaic and Harlequin nail was what it should be. And he listened to me and when I was done, he said, no, I think it should be the Quitter's nail. <laughs> and I said, okay. I'm actually hoping that when I die, they'll name this after me. The eponym will be the Verghese nail. <laughs> But eponyms are going out of fashion, which is so sad. You know, William Osler has so many things named after him. Osler's disease, Osler Weber Rendu disease, Osler's nodes, Osler's maneuver. A wonderful way to remember, and there's stories behind this. And I don't know why, but the eponyms are going away. I had no ambition to be a writer. I want to talk to you about the moment when that changed. I became a writer because of my experience in East Tennessee. I had finished my infectious disease training and I'd landed in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, a small medical school nestled in the Smoky Mountains. And everyone said that in that small town, I could expect to see one HIV infected patient every other year, maybe because AIDS was an urban disease. And mind you, I'd been caring for lots of patients with HIV at Boston City Hospital. But in a very short time, defying all these predictions, I was following almost 100 people with HIV in a town of 50,000, a hundredfold more than anyone predicted. And so I wrote a scientific paper describing this because I thought this was happening all over America, every small town. I was describing a new paradigm a young man grows up in a small town, leaves for all the reasons you and I leave small towns, jobs, education, opportunity. But in their case, they were also leaving because they were gay and didn't want to live that lifestyle under the close scrutiny of their friends and relatives. And now, decades later, the virus had found them and they were coming back, typically because their partners had died and there was no one to care for them, or sometimes just to escape the plague. And there I was at the tail end of this migration. And the scientific paper got a lot of attention. It's widely cited. But I felt it didn't begin to capture the tragic nature of this voyage. 
It didn't begin to capture the heartache of the families. It didn't begin to capture my own grief at living through this again and again, taking care of young men my age at the time and watching them die. And that was the moment that I became a writer. I decided that I would tell that story. I would take off from my job in moonlight while I wrote the story for a year is what I thought. I also applied to the Iowa Writers' Workshop with no expectation I would get in. The criteria for admission was two short stories and I submitted them. They took me and I went. I cashed in my 401k plan. I gave up my tenured associate professor position and with my wife and young kids took off to Iowa uh, on New Year's Eve of 1990. Uh, I don't know if I'd do it again. It would cost me the marriage in all likelihood. But that's what I did. I wanted to tell the story. That was also the lesson my patients were imparting to me. Don't postpone your dreams. Do the things you want to do. And that set me on the path to my first book, a memoir titled My Own Country. There's some irony in that title because for my patients, even though they were hometown boys, even though they knew the ritual of Friday night football and you know, uh, possum pie and, uh, and a, a, a peanut blaster parfait at the Dairy Queen after the game, even though they knew all the rituals and spoke the language, they were in fact aliens in that town because of their sexuality. And meanwhile, I, always envious of anybody who has a hometown, uh, as much as I thought I fit in, I probably didn't. I probably stuck out like a sore thumb. So the title, My Own Country, had some irony. My time at the Iowa Writers' Workshop was just wonderful. Uh, we met only once a week and I had plenty of time to read, which I needed to do badly because I felt I was behind all the other students in the language that they used to describe writing and the names they dropped, and also to write and find our voice. I found great comfort from the program director, Frank Conroy, who came closest to anyone I know to expressing a theory of writing. Frank would say, he would actually draw two figures on the board, two arcing arrows, and he would say, where does a story exist? It doesn't exist in a book. It doesn't exist on the pages. He says, a story exists at this place where the writer provides the words, the reader provides their imagination, and in middle space, this fictional dream comes about. And that concept I found very useful. If you provide too many words, the reader doesn't like it because they want to be able to imagine it. If you provide not enough words, then the reader doesn't know what you're talking about, kind of like Finnegan's Wake. Who the hell knows what that book is about? <laughs> I don't know. I found that I've received, I think many of the writers here have received theses, master's theses from people expounding on a work of ours. I mean, I've received something like that several times on Cutting for Stone, explaining to me how the theme of my novel and the way I use symbolism and all the Jungian things that were in the novel and all the foreshadowing I'd done. And I often think, wow, if only I was that intelligent, you know? <laughs> but they're not wrong. That interpretation is theirs. They own the little movie that they made, just as I took from Human Bondage the one thing that I, that I thought was important. This idea, the construct of a story, two arcing parts, ties in with 
a concept I have about medicine. I think the patient provides the words. In fact, in the medical history, what is the medical history but a story? You have the word story embedded in history. So the patient provides the words in what they tell you. Their body is a further text that provides more information. And you, the physician, provide your imagination and your knowledge to try and shape some diagnostic possibilities. I think that I write today to continue to reconcile those outer and inner journeys. Not surprisingly, Ethiopia, India, El Paso, those are the places where my imagination went in my books. I have yet to set a novel in America, but I think the next one, when and if I write it, will be in America. I feel a great affection for this country. I feel like I've been here long enough to have the authority to write something like this. I'm a proud citizen, so stay tuned. The process of matching inner and outer geography continues. I think there is no work of art that is not a relationship between our inner and our outer experience, a way of taking the world in for repairs, for examination, and bringing it out whole or transformed and transformative. Ladies and gentlemen, your love of books, of story, is what has brought us to this pavilion. To paraphrase Camus, fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. If through a book you can find yourself in the shoes of another, in the shoes of a 12-year-old bride, even in the shoes of a leper, you have achieved a kind of transcendence. Such a moment does not belong to the writer or to the reader. It belongs to all of us. I thank all of you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To learn more about the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, please visit our website at svwc.com. And if you'd like to support what we do, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate it very much. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and thanks for listening.